Hello. This is Josie Long on Robin Ince and Josie's Book Shambles. Welcome back. I don't know what number episode this is, but we are frankly thrilled to have with us Mark Gatiss. And we're going to be talking about books like we always do. Can so. we call it a bambles? Is that a portmanteau word for, for book shambles? Yes. We bambles. bambles. Or brambles. Or like a... Bramble picking. But I feel like there needs to be a sh- shirt in there still. So there will like be. Bushambles. Well, I tell you to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, the, well, we, shushed in my own shambles. <laughs> we uh, we uh, uh, just mentioning Mark Lawson. Now, you did an interview with Mark I Lawson. Did, yes, yes. I was trying to remember. He brought up, didn't he, with you, Les Dennis's Must the Show Go On? Did he bring it up on you? I thought That's it was his autobiography. No, I don't. Th- oh, uh, no. What, his, his autobiography? Mm. No, I don't think so. I think you're thinking of someone else. I was certain that it was on, on your one that did Must the Show Go On. Oh, maybe he did. Oh. He just he kind of said it very briefly. Um, it was, uh, which I would highly recommend. Well, I'm a big fan of uh, showbiz autobiographies. That, uh, there are, Tom O'Connor's one is brilliant. There's a... And uh, Donna Stells, I've got that. And Sin- oh, we see Donna Sin- Stells comes up quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Annoyingly, I toured with mine so much that I've, the dust wrap is in tatters. Mm. Notes of a Gemini. It's uh, uh, thoughts uh, of a Gemini. Donna Stell, uh, sing lofty, sing thoughts of a Gemini. Yeah, Why? it's one of those ones with like Why? subtitle yes. after subtitle. Yes. Right, hang on. I'm not sure it's the right Donastel. Oh, hang on. It's the Gemini Donastel <laughs> from TV's at Ain't Half Pop Mum. And it's a great. Yes. I mean, that God is da- Danny so. Baker's a huge fan of that yeah. one. And of course, you you had uh, Donastel in, uh, in the, yes. the roundabout. He brought uh, a, he brought a case and he said, "I brought all my own hats." What was, was it? Hang on. What he was in the League of Gentlemen? He played Who the owner he of the Roundabout League? Zoo in Series One. Oh, wow, little Don. Yeah, that was Donastel. He is a great oh dear, example. How sad. Never mind. <laughs> he he was. Uh, well, this is. If we're on showbiz autobiographies, right? What would you say is your favourite? The one that you return to most? Not necessarily to read it all, but to go. Oh God, some of these. I think a, a genuinely great one is Bob Monkhouse's "Crying with Laughter." Oh, my mum yeah. read it to me. Got me into That's that. That's a really good book. It's it's mm. it's un, unflinching, and and yeah. c- considering you you imagine it's going to be quite light, and it's actually quite dark. There's an amazing bit when, uh, well, he describes being chased around a dressing room by Frankie Howard with a with a surgical Vaseline glove on his hand. This is Frankie Howard, and also that as, as uh, Diana Dawes describes. Um, John Pertwee is that old Jewish puff. <laughs> I've never forgotten that. <laughs> that'll probably have to go. Who's, no, the, uh, <laughs> does that wonderful? Because the reason that Frankie Howard he says that he's going to marry oh, wonderful actress from Kind Hearts and Coronets. Uh, um, 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 I was with his with uh, her son only last night. Her name is Joan um, Joan Greenwood. Joan Greenwood, yeah. And and it's, it, doesn't he say it's the whole thing goes? Oh, can you help me? Because I'm going to marry Joan, but I, I can't do anything with this. And then he drops his trousers. And is is halfway uh, to full priapism, mm. and uh, and so he asks Bob to help him just That's to see right, if he can yes, manage to. Yes. It is, and then there's another lovely one where he wow. he talks about what a clever um, way in. Yeah, the Joan Greenwood option. <laughs> you can't, it doesn't work without Joan. You need you need a, a Joan. Yeah, I am going to marry Joan Greenwood. Yeah. Oh, oh, I just realised I'm in a garden shed with Frankie Howard, and he's brought up Joan Greenwood. But the, it is an amazing. I mean, that book certainly changed more than anything else he did on television. I mean, towards the end, he did change. What well, people go, well, you know, the sad thing about Bob was he was so underrated. And you go, well, no, actually, for a lot of his career, he was Mr. Game Show. Yeah, he yeah, was, yeah. but there was a, that last few years, yeah. Crime with Laughter, I think, yeah, is, is a superb. Really and he, his hatred of Linda Lee Potter. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, no. Who's Linda Lee Potter? She was one of the kind yeah. of... Uh, the Katie quite... Hopkins of her day. Oh, God. She kind of was, wasn't yeah. she? She would write these... And he was going to meet his son, and then there was some kind of revelation in her column, mm. uh, which meant his son thought that he'd leaked it to the press, and he never saw his son again. His son oh, killed my... himself. Oh, but it's, it's filled... Yeah, it is. I, I, I would agree. I would say the best books about really stand-up yeah. and about being a comedian are Bob Monkhouse's and Steve Martin's Born Standing Up is... I still superb. haven't read you know when you forget that people actually invented things? That mm. you go, oh, well, Steve, you watch Steve Martin, and because he changed the language of stand-up for so many people, you forget that when he was playing Sausalito and dying on his ass, and no one went for it. And that, that must be a... Did you ever have that moment of some of the things that you did uh, where audiences didn't get? And, of course, once League of Gentlemen came out and uh, was people you know, adored it, and then you sometimes, sometimes you might be sitting in front of an audience thinking... These are the same people who'd have rejected us. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, in a way, because we actually, um, b- before we decided to sort of have our own evening, that was the key 
difference. We, we, we did actually do some sketches like on the circuit. And I remember distinctly doing a, a gig at the Water Rats pub in King's mm. Cross. Oh, yeah. And um, it was so dreadful because, you, you know, you just can't, an audience like that that are expecting stand-up, they pay attention for about 30 seconds and then they just start talking. It's deadly. Mm. But the, the thing I'll never forget is the guy who uh, introduced it sort of damned us with faint praise from the beginning because he, he was like, I'm not sure this will be to your taste, but oh, we, and we were doing, God. I think it was the the, full, the businessman sketch and it, we, it just died. And I, and uh, the, we had a mic like this one on, on the stand which kept creeping downwards. I remember Steve <laughs> Pemberton just levering it up with his foot. Anyway, it was deadly. And then as we left, the guy came back on stage and said, I told you it was intellectual. Oh, Which, of God. course, is a terrible crime. I, I, I used to get that. where People, people <laughs> compare thinking, again, that pretense that they think they're being helpful. They know they're nailing mm-hmm. you to that cross. Yeah, and yeah, go, yeah. Now, the next act, right, just so you know, he's a very funny guy, but he's a little bit clever. So what <laughs> they're going is, please reject this man who, who's been showing off that he's yeah. read books by occasionally <laughs> using references that you, the people, will not understand yeah. if we allow him to rise. I remember, the, did you see Jason, um, Jason Watkins is amazing? performance in uh, about um, in the oh god let's, let's stop while I remember this <laughs> um, about the guy who was accused of, of killing Joe Yates oh yes 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 the, um, what's it called oh this is so frustrating because I the can't think of the name but um, of of uh, Christopher no Christopher yes it was Christopher and I can't remember oh. the name but we know yes the, the, of, of, of yes who was yeah Jason he, was, he was a teacher who because yes. he had uh, an unusual hair haircut yeah. Li- yeah and um, what what they did, brilliant piece of, of of staging in in the film um, they they kept the papers from all the press from him. And then they had this wonderful sequence where Jake, Jason sits down and actually goes through all the press. And it was all the real press. And it made me gawp at the, at the, the horror of it because the sun's two-page spread on him. The, the list of, of crimes, the reason he was guilty in their eyes, it actually, the top line was, likes books, poetry. I mean, literally like an indictment. That, oh, he must have killed her. He's an, he's, he likes books. Oh, that makes me want to cry. Terrifying. It's a strange thing, the, the, the suspicion of the reader. Yeah. Oh, wouldn't you know? That's I... how I... Je- but I'm sure that we all... Don't, when you go into someone's house, you don't really know them. We are people who just have a look. Not to judge look at the people, books, yeah, yeah. look at the books. Yeah. And sometimes you look at the books and you think, probably this won't form into... Do you know, well, you know John, John to... Waters' famous quote? He said, if you oh, go yeah. back to someone's house and they don't have any books, don't fuck them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I see, I've... I feel like I know it's wrong to judge in that way, really, because people might be the sort of person who likes to give away books, which to me, I can't fathom why you do that. But at the same time, like very generous, very kind, you know, or but I went back to the house I grew up in and I lived on a house in St. Mary Cray. On a house, in a house, in St. Mary. On a house. I lived on a house. It was like unconventional. Sa- Santa. Honestly, yeah, honestly. in the chimney, and they would <laughs> fling you me up a bit of bread of a morning. You've been reading about sitting it. on roofs without a stitch on. I'm so sorry. I grew up in this house in St. Mary Cray, and it was on like a sort of little estate, and it's like um, I was sort of going going on a nostalgia walk with my friend because I haven't lived there for a long, long time, and we knocked on the door and we thought, fuck it, we're just going to ask. We're two women in their thirties. We don't look like a threat. I wonder if they'll let us have a little look in. We knocked on the door and the only people who were in were the teenage kids. And obviously they didn't know the protocol. So they were like, yeah, come in, look round. So we were like, brilliant. And we looked all around the house. There weren't any books at all. And now my parents like are hoarders of books, right? But instead of books, they had this massive cabinet full of giant, only Yankee candle, the brand Yankee candles, giant Yankee candles the size of buckets. And I was like, is this a thing? Like, is this what everyone else is doing? And I don't realise because for some reason my parents chose books <laughs> and everyone else has got... Maybe to be charitable, they had, of... they'd etched novels into the wax. Hot, <laughs> and I didn't take the pins. lid off. Yeah. And I could have just seen I it I think all. you'll find that inside the buckets of candles... I don't want to sound could snobby. Be worse. They could be really extreme fans of Willem Dafoe and Madonna. Oh. Pouring hot wax onto And the each teenagers don't buckets. even know. Do. But I don't want to sound don't snobby. You remember that? No, what was that in? It's another film we won't be able to remember the name of. Oh, it's Body uh, of Evidence. Body of Evidence. Oh, yeah. And it was famous for the, uh, you know, it was one of those films go, it's a really erotic film. And you go, oh dear, is it? 
Oh. Yes. These I have to because you mentioned John Waters. And I don't know if we've talked about this on the podcast before, but did you see John uh, Waters' version of Pink Flamingos being read by children? Oh my <laughs> it was at, they had a little exhibition. Uh, it was it was uh, just near Green Park. Some wonderful things. He had like National Enquirers, but as if they were all just filled with stories about Joyce Carol Oates having writer's block <laughs> and you know JD Salinger looking unpleasant on the on the beach because he's got cellulite. But then also kids in kind of vague uh, approximations of the Pink Flamingos at costumes. Obviously, he's changed the dialogue. Yes. <laughs> he's certainly changed very much what happens with the butler who, uh, you know, inseminates the stolen women. That that's changed. <laughs> uh, but it was a, a wonderful thing. I, I do. John Waters actually. I don't. Talk, we haven't really talked enough about his book. His books are fantastic. Mm. What would Shock you value. recommend for people? Because I I love John Waters. I've seen a lot of his films. I haven't even thought to read his books, which is pathetic. I but... would highly recommend reading his essay on Johnny Mathis. In role models, which is fantastic. I've not seen this. It's role models. It's a collection. My mum cried when she found out Johnny Mathis was gay. I, I, do you know what? I'm not entirely sure he is yet. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, officially. I think he is. I, is I love it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what's lovely about John Waters. Doesn't in any way snidely insinuate. Mm. He just writes a piece where you could kind of, but there's nothing there. It, it, and he loves him so much, obviously, that that's all that matters. Is this man's a wonderful artist? And he's I think, a lovely you know, person. it's Christmas when a child is born. It's in all our minds, mm. isn't it? As ever. Well, this is the because uh, this is good. this is probably one of our Christmas specials because you have a new Sherlock. Yes, right? and we can't day. not talk about no. the show because I'm not here to plug it. No, no, no. I know you're not here oh, to plug it, but I want to talk about it because now that you are accidentally mainstream, which I think is a wonderful thing, where all of the things that you have. Well, when Reese um, Shearsmith was on a few weeks ago, and we were talking about the importance of certain pieces of culture for what we might consider to be the outside or eccentric children. The ones who like books and poetry, (laughs) right? I should say I heard well-read as an insult uh, the other day. And it really shocked me. I was like, oh... It's, oh, I think it's like well hung. It's not. An it's beautiful, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like we've got sort of muscular Marley's ghost. <laughs> oh. We're chained to our books, but look at how many they can. Speaking of which, have you seen that brilliant film? It's directed by Bobcat Goldthwait, and it's called World's Greatest Dad. It's got um, yeah. uh, Robin Williams. Williams in it. Also, yeah. I think we've recommended it already. But call me lucky. They call me lucky about Barry Crimmins, fascinating uh, stand-up of the 1980s. I will give away nothing. I'll tell you afterwards some of the things that are fascinating about it. But Bobcat Goldthwait, wonderful documentary about comedy. Oh. So the uh, but in that basically the son hates music, and when he's when he's like speaks to me, he sort of is like, yeah, I bet you like music because you're like, <laughs> pathetic. And and that, I'd never thought that there might be people who would think of yeah. all of it like yeah, 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 yeah. all of it is yeah. like oh wankers who like oh, do you know i remember this is uh good, but there was uh, D- um gary lineker's desert island discs um he astonishingly says uh I-, I don't really like music so i've just chosen eight records from the top 40 oh my god that, That's i was a psychopath i was chill i was chilled to the bone by that Maybe you could be more warmed, though, by watching the documentary about his relationship with the snooker player Willie Thorne. Ah, Have you not seen no, that? No. It's about... It's a, you know, when it's a romance. Think, it's, I think it's on the verge. It's not quite <laughs> Thelma and Louise, but it has hints of a Leicestershire Thelma and Louise, I think. <laughs> um, so what was, were the books that... Uh, you know, the books that saved your life. The, uh, those books that when you were... You know, the child in the bedroom thinking, I have these. Mm. These are... Oh, yes, well... Um, Conan Doyle, obviously, huge, uh, from, from very early on, Sherlock Holmes made, meant everything to me. Um, a lot of the things which have now become like children's classics, but in their day were actually great literature and, and now huh. they've been relegated. Like Treasure Island, I adored that book. Um, uh, great Expectations, I still have the copy I got from Santa at Phoenix in Newcastle when I was four. And uh, we had to go in a, a rocket to see Santa. And it was, I was so frightened. It was magically frightening to go in this rocket. And obviously what they did was that in the portal of the rocket, they, they had a little moving thing which looked like space going. But I thought I was going. And then you come out again into a, into a silver foil-lined corridor, which in my imagination is about a mile-long Kafkaesque corridor. And at the end was this obviously boozy, rather too skinny man with a beard. And he gave me the children's classic of Great Expectations, complete and unabridged, it says on, on the side. 
and it's still one of my absolute favourite books. So I, there were lots of things like that. And my dad was a, was a voracious reader, uh, and he had in our bookcase, Jake, we still have, um, which eventually had all my Target Doctor Who books in it, were all the Dennis Wheatleys and all the Bonds, and that's uh, that was a huge introduction to me. I was so frightened of the covers of the Dennis Wheatley books. I feel I really dense not knowing about Dennis Wheatley. Yeah. But he's one of those ones that I don't know what of his is still published. He's, he's virtually but Almost not. the Harold Robbins, I mean, not the same as Harold Robbins, but there are certain authors that on the point in which they die, I actually think Gore Vidal, we're going to be going, wow, all of his books, even though, again, very different author, they kind of will fade out. I agree. Because he I is agree. not there. What? What does that? Why is it that that happens well, to some uh, people but not others? Uh, in the end, it's like, I mean, Dick Wheatley was the most popular novelist for like 20 years, wow. insanely popular. In the end, what kills them is they're not very good huh. and they don't last. But I mean, he, you know, the, the, the um, 50s and 60s, well, adventure uh, with sadism and race, racism. <laughs> and and for, for a few, although they became the predominant ones, uh, but Satanism, the, the best is, by miles is The Devil Rides Out. Uh, which is a terrific story, brilliant Hammer film. When you actually read the book, though, there are things in it that that make your jaw drop. Um, just the casual racism of it. It's, uh, uh, but but a lot of the others are sort of um, sort of uh, high adventure stories, um, wartime, lots of wartime things. But he was, I mean, insanely popular. He was he was almost the, the British equivalent of the American pulp writers, wasn't yeah. he? And then also loads of spin-offs, so you could get ah, oh, I've got Dennis Wheatley's book of Satan and Suspicion, mm. and it's all these different uh, chapter on ESP and all oh, anything wow. basically that yeah. they could put. It, it like Roald Dahl's Tales of the Unexpected. If it went Dennis Wheatley's quiver full of horror, yeah. <laughs> and there you would have various different horror stories. That as long as Dennis I... Wheatley, and how much do I get from your name on the yeah. cover? Thanks yeah. very much. Yeah. That will do yeah. fine. Yeah. And what kind of a person was he? Oh, a monster. Uh, (laughs) He was was a cousin, I think, of Christopher Lee, or Christopher Lee was related to everyone, but he certainly knew him very well. Uh, He knew him very well. Uh, and they in the war he was in he was in uh, the same uh, in branch of intelligence as Ian Fleming and and devised some of the some of the stranger of their uh, sort of um, SIS's odd plots. Uh, but some of them came off, you know. Um, so he was in intelligence, wow. and but he was an absolute. I remember Christopher Lee saying on the documentary, uh, "I'm glad Dennis is dead, to be frank." Wow! Be- because he would have been so appalled at what's happened to this country. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Josie, you were yeah. thinking you were hopeful. I was like, there. "You're glad he's dead because he's so awful." No. Oh no, there we are. That oh, is a lovely God. thing, isn't it? There was a comedian who I won't name who uh, I, I read something and I thought, you know, halfway through the sentence you think, I think I may well be able to change opinion on the threat. And they went, you know, sometimes you think you're really famous. And then, and I thought, oh, maybe Richard Blackwood's going to be a little bit different, actually. And then the next <laughs> line was, and then you go outside and you realise you're even more famous than you thought you were. And I went, oh, thank heavens I don't have to change my position. Um, <laughs> Nothing worse than having to back down. What about Tall, Dark and Gruesome then? As we're talking about, yes. which, which came out in various forms and then I think ended up as the Lord of... Um, I can't remember the final title yeah, that yeah. his... his uh, well, I can remember had. the day I bought that. It's Christopher Lee's autobiography. Oh, wow. Tall, Dark and Gruesome with a cover from the Satanic Rites of Dracula. I bought it in Dudu at Smiths in Middlesbrough. I can remember it vividly. It's quite a dry book. Yes, but it is. He uh, lived probably 15 years beyond that. Oh, forever. Oh, yes. no, the, yeah, the first volume was probably, what, about 1978 or something? Yeah, yeah, or, yeah. yeah. But he would have only been sort of 50 or 60. Yeah, he made a couple of hundred films. Yeah, it's crazy. Ah, no, right, it just, but it is, it's, an, it's, it's disappointingly dry because, he, I mean, he, he's an incredible gift for name-dropping and huh. uh, uh, Niven-like proportions. And, um, and, but he, did, he, sort of, he genuinely knew everyone. He was a child. <laughs> when he was a child, he was woken up in the middle of the night by his mother to meet two visiting gentlemen. Whose hand he shook, and they were—it was Prince Yusupov and the other guy who had killed Rasputin. That's—that's wow. that's the sort of story he would be able to tell. He's, he knew everyone. You Mervyn Peake, you knew Tolkien. You met M.R. James when he was a, a child. Astonishing, astonishing. But unfortunately, it's not as juicy as you want because he wasn't a natural gossip. Yeah. Oh. Whereas David Niven's books, yeah. which are still worth amazing. Yes. And Peter Cushing's memoirs yes, are warmer. Aren't they? He's become more. And more delightful in my eyes, mm. where there's a, there's a lovely Peter Cushing little documentary on, I think it's on the Curse of Frankenstein DVD, of Joyce Broughton, uh, who was his assistant for yeah. 30 yeah. years, probably, yeah. you know, 20 years, I suppose, after, after his wife died. And you know when you just see someone talk and you go, oh, 
What a delightful! Everyone was mm. delightful. And every time you go to the yeah. tea rooms in uh, in Whitsby, you go, how delightful to be yes, here! Yes, mm. he was. And no, how annoyed you go! Oh dear, the butters come in packets. Peter would be furious. <laughs> he didn't like butter to come wrapped up. So going back to, because I, I do want to just talk about Sherlock Holmes because I wonder what it was if you were ever able to go right. This. This is what captured my imagination. Was it the the presumed logic of it? Was it what is it, which of the characters? Is, is it Sherlock himself that you just there is something so enigmatic? Because in many ways there aren't that many details. Other he's he's a character that becomes fleshed out to some extent in the imagination of the reader. There's quite a lot, but they're sort of, they're more sort of superficial eccentricities than that. I think it's just um, the the stories are wonderfully written. So vivid and fast and incredibly dialogue heavy it's amazing when you if anyone reads them for the first time it's it, Doyle was such a modern writer and um that it's essentially the relationship between the two men and and, and this you know you read the first one it's he Doyle does it so brilliantly you, you you're introduced to Sherlock Holmes second hand by Stamford who who's a friend of Dr Watson's and he says who's looking for a flat this is what we did in the series it's all there all the mm. same thing and the um and he says, oh, actually, I was talking to a friend of mine. Maybe you wouldn't get on. He says, why? So you're immediately intrigued. And he says, well, he's a little too cold-blooded for my taste. And when he describes when he, f- he, he beats corpses in the dissecting rooms to assess the extent, extent of bruising after death, you go, ah. And, you know, he makes you, you think, well, I've got to see this man. I've got to meet this yeah. man. And then they finally meet in the laboratory at Bart's Hospital. And, and immediately Holmes looks at Watson and says, you've been in Afghanistan, I perceive. Doesn't explain it. For three chapters... And so you're going, well, I got... So, you know, you're halfway through the book before you know anything, but he's got you. And then, ultimately, you know, the relationship between these two completely dissimilar men who actually form a unit of friendship, plus the incredible thing of the deductions, which everyone as a child wants to be able to do. And you think, you know, you still think, oh, maybe I could learn how to do that. And especially as a child, what I like is that you think... You don't realise that adults have been on the planet three times as long as you. Mm. So you're like, don't worry, guys, I'm eight years old. I've got this for you. I've got this sorted. (laughs) You don't need to worry. Do you have a favourite, obviously apart from your own, reinvention of Sherlock Holmes? I was thinking of things like The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes or The 7% Solution. Private Life is my favourite film of all time. And uh, a huge influence on uh, me and Steve Moffat uh, for the show. It's a beautiful, it's a masterpiece. And it's so funny and yet so melancholy. It's got the lot, I think. It's, it's, uh, and, and a bit like On A Majesty's Secret Service, which is my favourite Bond, it's actually, it's not quite rightness is what makes it work. Robert Stevens is actually quite a, quite a florid, sort of Wildian uh, Sherlock Holmes uh, um, uh, Christopher Lee's Mycroft is is absolutely inspiration for mine, and that, you know, but but it's it's a it's a sum of things which are together. It's a love letter to Conan Doyle, and and it's so particularly Billy Wilder. Uh, it's a wonderful film. Recommend it hugely. Did you ever think of shaving your own head like Christopher Lee had to do? For <laughs> That's so naughty. He can say that now because he's dead. What uh, do you mean? Christopher what? Lee wore a wig forever. Uh, sometimes quite a good one, oh. and to his dying day, he insisted that he had to shave his head to play Mycroft Holmes in The Private Life, and he didn't. And in fact, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, another parallel story from uh, Roy Ashton, the uh, makeup artist at Amicus, who was doing a film with Christopher Lee when he was auditioning, because it was originally going to be, um, it was going to be uh, George Sanders who had to pull out. And so he went from eating and and it went quite he came back to the studios and Roy Ashton said how did it go and he went yeah quite well there was something and and Roy Ashton said he said they want to see me again and he said chris take it off and he went back in and he got the part and i think it was cuz wilder thought i'm not sure i can work with anyone who's who, who is that vain yeah. and he took but he still to his dying day said uh, he had to shave and when I I didn't realise right I was genuinely Mark was going yeah. oh what you didn't know and I'm not the only one there's loads of other people who've been really, the only reason I found out was because there was something in the oldie magazine about the one time that his hair came off and it was when he was making the far pavilions and his horse reared up next to Rupert Everett's and uh, he fell backwards and it came oh, off and God. he scarpered immediately and that, that is the only time. I'm going to say, if I'm ever on television again, I'm going to say I had to put on a lot of weight for the part. <laughs> <laughs> it was gruelling. I had to it put on a lot of weight for the part. One of my fascinations. I've, it, it was, and my dad forgets about this, but we were going around an exhibition about uh, the uh, underground in, the, uh, in World War II in France 
uh, the underground movement, and there was a bit of, of secret army, and he said, look, you can see the gauze on that picture of Bernard Hepton, and you could see the little gauze on Bernard, and, and, and he goes, I don't remember that. I said, yeah, but Dad, you told me that at 10, and from that point onwards, I became obsessed with the fascination but, but, of but gauze. But you see, that's totally different. That's a, that's a character wig. Oh, that's a character wig, yes. yeah. Yes. The, oh, no, I'm not, in no, no way having no. go at Bernard Hepton. Is, <laughs> I, I don't want to be slanderous, but is there anyone who's famous now who wears a wig? Well, there's, I find it interesting. There's a lot of comics who I, don't, I think people don't wear wigs as much, do they? Because they can have like Frankie Howard. Hair, I never thought of wearing a, a wig because it, it was so him. exuberantly. <laughs> yes, it, it wore is. him. It was like a Bonoffi pie. His it was so terrible that that the streak of brown, the streak of kind of cream from the t- it was terrible. It was like he just taken out the wash and plunked oh, it on God. his head. Um, well, people have a lot of weaves now, don't they? Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's quite it's more sophisticated now. It's a silly question. I always find that w- I'm kind of wary of the modern comic doing that because I think that in a lot of stand-up, there's meant to be a level of honesty, and therefore mm. that, that is, you know, why I've never. Through. Anthony Burgess always had a problem with that yeah, comb over. Yeah, yeah. That, that mm. was. Uh, I mean, here's a strange thing, sounding like an old curmudgeon in the corner, but the the current trend for young men to to have comb overs when they don't need them. Ooh. He's amazing. Some of the, I mean, you look, I saw a guy the other day, a really quite handsome man who looked like a 70s football manager because he'd combed it from his right ear over. And it's like, don't do that. One day you'll have to. Don't do it yet. <laughs> I find that's one of the hardest things about being a balding man now is that I've never really taken much care of my hair. And now I have to make sure that I haven't slept at an angle where it's pushed some of it up mm. to make it appear that I'm trying to cover oh. up my baldness. I couldn't agree more. I, I, I don't, you know, I, I rather I wasn't, but I am. But, and, I, and I'm not vain about it in that way. But and I, I, my hair's quite short and I like it this length because I'm not trying to hide anything. Mm. When I have to grow it for a part, it's nightmarish because it looks like you're trying to disguise it. When I'm playing Mycroft and I have to dye my hair, uh, when it's under a hat, when it comes out from under a hat, it looks like an oil slick. It's horrible, and I and I'm desperately worried that people are thinking I'm trying to sort of tart it up. And I'm really but you'd not. written in your yeah. contract like this no, is very no. important. Yeah, but you're but, very uh, lucky, Mox. You've still got the tuft. You see, I've got the tuft. I got a tuft. I know, I know. I there was know. a point where I thought, well, that's one of my favourite weeks. I don't know if we've covered this. Herbert but now Long's I'm just staring week. at both oh, of yeah, your yeah, hairs. Yeah, yeah. Herbert, well, yeah, hairs. Thank you very much. No, no, you just I, said both... now I'm staring at both of your hairs. No, both two, of which is not as bad. I'm not that bald. The two you've got left. What's the what's the what is the even correct way to? Oh, it doesn't matter. Now I'm seeing your decrepitude and death no. before me, Robin. Um, Anthony Ainley, who played the master in Doctor Who in the 80s, had a, had a syrup, or an Irish, as they also used to call them, an Irish jig. And he wore a wig on a wig. And I remember talking to uh, someone who worked with him. He would come into work with his wig and they'd have to put the master's wig on top of his wig because, of course, he was suggesting that he had a wonderful full head of hair. So he ended, he ended up with a sort of tall head because there were too many wigs on it. Oh my God. Charlton Heston was the same, I believe, as well. Yeah. The um, I, I want to... Sorry, Josie. Oh no, I, this is sort of to follow on from what we were talking about pre-wigs, and I'm so sorry to have really focused in on wigs then, but it was fascinating for me. This is the most Christmassy wig special we've yeah, ever done, isn't it? I, I, it's Christmas wig. Now... Uh, bear in mind that when I saw it, I was a very young child, and that may well be why I think it's really brilliant. But do, what do you think about the film? And it's from the eighties, and it's uh, young Sherlock Holmes, where there's all the hallucinations. Young Sherlock Holmes, hate the it? pyramid of fear. Yeah, is do you think it? it's terrible? Mm. Do you think I it's non I haven't seen it for years, but Nicholas Rowe is very good. I and actually, um, I was watching uh, Mr. Holmes the other day, the McKellen film. I saw that with my sister recently. And in in the he <laughs> yes. goes to see a film. In the film. A black and white film about himself, and it's Nicholas Rowe playing, playing Sherlock Holmes. Oh, that's a lovely. I touch, stopped yes. the film because yeah. I was so delighted. It's very sweet. Yes. But I see. I mean, I remember at the time. Um, it well, I, I actually I was fifteen, and I sent off my detail. And this is here's a killer. Here's a killer family thing. I sent off a picture of myself, and I got a letter back from Amblin and from the casting people, Spielberg. I remember it was like the first exciting thing that ever happened to me. Wow. And I and uh, I showed it to my parents, and then my my mum ripped it up and threw it in the bin, and I because I, I obviously wanted to keep it, and she went, "Well, you didn't get it." It's like, oh, oh my god, I know, never forgotten, never forgotten. This is another strange thing because they, <laughs> they, they came to my school, and I did a little screen test for that as well. You see, yeah. I'm but so glad I, I brought so, this up. Uh, I couldn't do it, so, so therefore I, was such I hated, a nervous hated the child. Film. <laughs> I couldn't. No. I so both of you are like, it should have been me. No, no, it really shouldn't have been. He, it should have been him, should have been but it shouldn't it should have, have been, been me. you. But the thing is, um, it's one of, I remember not liking the film, not for that reason, but because it was, um, 
it was it was sort of forcing a kind of Indiana Jones format yes. on 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 something that didn't suit it. And there's that sequence where I mean, as as a completely spotty Sherlock Holmes fan, I couldn't bear the fact that Holmes and Watson had met at school. It's not canonical. Mm. It's ridiculous. So I did, I didn't like I it. Didn't like, like it. That. And that sequence where he hallucinates with the oh, cakes. I love it so much. And the yeah. cakes are trying to get. But, but you I see, think... I'm not. No, I, I recently had a. A stand-up row with someone about '80s films, of which I am generally not a fan. Mm. I know that sounds ridiculously mm. sweeping, but I think an awful lot of the big '80s films just don't, don't stand up. Ghostbusters, not very. Mm. It's not very good. Okay. It's not honestly. Have a look. It's I'm, not. Very I'm good. with you on this. I think the There's '80s. Some... I think that, and then I think of things like The Killing Fields and The Mission. Yes. Now those no, no. films. I don't, it's more. It's more the big sort of blockbuster yeah. um, popcorn movies. I think of really. is really good. No, it's not. It's awful. No. Do you know what? I was disappointed. I love. God, Shouty. I feel so bad. The Scrooge, Scrooge though has one fall in it where I was so obsessed. There's a bit where when the one of the kind of ghosty waiters has appeared when he's having a meal with the wonderful John Glover, such a tremendous yes. actor, and uh, he leaves and trips on a step and does a double trip. And I used to walk up steps and try and work out how he did it. I was so obsessed at the age of 18 by Bill Murray and how he did this wonderful trip on the stage. I I never got it. But I think it is an age thing. I mean, Mm. spare your blushes. But But I'm older than you and I'm older than you and it does make a difference because when you discover that my my thunder someone else's thundercats is my thunderbirds as it were you mm. you go are you mad so i can i know that those fil- films like the goonies which i think is is worse than death oh, come on it's one of the worst things ever for, but for oh, some people for some people it was it was the, it was a magical it was film, of a certain you know? time yeah yeah but i but, think it's, I, th- there's a particular genre of mid 80s shouty film mm. with incredibly annoying children like uh, temple of doom that I just find unwatchable. You have to imagine being a six, seven-year-old yeah, girl course, in the yeah. suburbs where there was nothing exciting going Weirdly, on. Weirdly, that's all I ever imagined. <laughs> but you don't need to remain. I think the nostalgic fondness of course, doesn't of mean that. Because I agree. I'm not going to waste my time now. Those films where you go, every single one is hoping to be a franchise. Like young Sherlock Holmes mm. is there going, and then we're going to, Howard the Duck is waiting for Howard the Duck 2. I wish that young but, Sherlock Holmes had been a franchise. <laughs> you pricks, tuned, I'd have been there every time. Tuned. But we did have Patang Yang Kipperbang. Uh, so What's there's Patang Yang Kipperbang. It's the first film, film on four. four. Now, you see, those things for me were a remarkable thing. Anyway, oh, we should get back to books. I thought we were talking about books. We are. It's know, Josie, it's, you've made it all about really Goonies. It's really interesting to about find wigs. out these things. Wigs are, anyway, Herbert my Long's first... wig was very small. <laughs> and the reason it works as a wig is you'd never think that someone would have a, a tiny wig, wig that's so tiny and it's brilliant. My first um, book is called The Wig. <laughs> now, you, the first books that you wrote, I have your James Whale uh, biography. I don't know if that was your first. Um, yes, I think so. Yes, yes. No, no, my first was a Doctor Who book called Nightshade. Which has just been adapted for wireless. By oh, big finish, yes. So <laughs> when you started, because I mean that you were doing that pretty much before you were, I mean that was before League and all of these things, yeah, all around the yeah, same time, yeah, was it? As you were yeah. developing that, so when you were trying to write, for instance, a Doctor Who book, and having been brought up on the hundred and twenty-eight page, you know, Doctor Who adaptations, how do you how did you approach that? What do you think? These are the things that are canonical. These are the things that I'm not allowed to change, and here are the things that I can fuck around with. Well, God, I mean, the, the the point of it at the time was um, the, the show came off the air in 89, Sylvester McCoy, and Virgin Books rather diligently got the license from the BBC to sort of carry on. So it was like the next season. It sort of took about two years, but that was effectively the thing. But the big idea behind it was to sort of make them much broader. And, I mean, in retrospect, they were called The New Adventures, and they sort of became... There's a very particular thing I think that happens with fans of anything, which is that when you grow up with something and then you realise you're actually slightly too old for it, and you blame it. Mm. And what you want to do is is drag it with you to being more adult, when in fact the thing you need to cherish is what it was mm-hmm. at the time. Which is why you know traditionally with Doctor Who fans, um, like the joke says, how many how many Doctor Who fans does it take to change a light bulb? I don't know. Change. <laughs> and that's that's the, the essence of it, you know. So, uh, but then and I think weirdly we were all slightly guilty of trying to sort of sex up the thing and make it. And in the end, I mean, some of them are very good actually, and 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 I really am very fond of my first one because it was a clever idea. It was about a set in the sixties. It's about an elderly actor in a retirement home who used to be in a kind of Quatermass-like TV show called Nightshade, and he starts seeing the monsters from his show in real life, and then the whole village is cut off and people start seeing the dead. And it's actually this this entity which which feeds off memory and and nostalgia, 
and that's how it draws its energy. You know, so it sort of conjures up things. It's good. It's not. I like. It's a, it's a good idea and could be done on television. <laughs> um, but uh, but the, I mean, that was the thing. I was. I just. You know, I remember the thrill of, of first writing. You know, putting them in the TARDIS and, and trying to do all the things I'd ever wanted to. I suppose. Mm. And that's certainly that's what I've continued to do on the TV. Is that uh, it's still amazing thrill to write interior TARDIS and think. I can, you know, take mm. them somewhere just, uh, as, as you always wanted to. Do you have, how do you capture that? Because I think sometimes it's very easy, to, it's the possibility of becoming cynical and then suddenly going, the nine-year-old you watching Matt Irvin showing how mm. to make some kind of model that's going yeah, to explode yeah, on yeah. some kind of planet and then going, to have seen now the 38-year-old Mark Gatiss as you are, <laughs> says, but you know, to then go, this is me. This is what I do. I do the things. Oh, it's incredible. That... No, it is incredible. And then that Doctor Who festival you came to the other, the other week at the XL, it was you know the, it's moving to see not only fans but families and particularly the children dressed up and they love it and they ask you the most perceptive and interesting questions and I, lo- I just find it really really moving and and very humbling to, mm. to still to be there and and to be doing it and actually I think. The older I get, and I'm not 38, I'm 49, uh, is uh, that the more you can meet anything with a with a with a sort of wall of optimism, that the better it the better it goes. And for especially something that's been around for 52 years, there is so, there's so much sort of sniping and and and, and backbiting and, and cynicism about things. And if you then you then you meet the real people who just like it mm. and just say, oh, I love that, you know. And rather than trying to sort of deconstruct too much, but I think it goes across the board. You know, it's actually in the end, it's much easier to be kind and and optimistic than anything else. Well, and especially if you're like that's why I am Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> but if you sort of take away the discourse and goes back to the actual things, that's that. That's that's yes, yeah. absolutely. And I, I mean, I I always try and put myself in the position of. You know, it was a review of my latest one in the Metro and I cut it out and I, I, I was going to write to the man. I'd never done that. But I nearly wrote to him only because what fascinated me was that there's been a version of this letter written since about 1965, which is that uh, he really loved the episode, but he said, it's, but it's not for children anymore because it had, a, it had references to, to Macbeth, to classical mythology and all these things. And, and, and I can show you, there's a letter from the Radio Times and it says uh, it's far too complicated now and the children, uh, they're not going to be watching it, 1976. Hmm. And it keeps happening like that. Um, and actually, it's, it's actually the reviewer who has forgotten what it's like to be eight years old. Now, if I was little and watching my last one, I would think, I would probably remember it as the one with the sleep men. Hmm. If I was a couple of years older, I might get some of the other references. But that's the point. It's always... It's always done that at its best. It's always been very broad church, but not broad church, uh, in that way. And I think that's that's a really laudable thing for anything to hope for. Well, we always return to Eric Thompson's work on the Magic Roundabout, mm. including Dougal going, I am a camera. Uh, yeah. And it's just packed yeah. with those things. So, so merely because we are in a very hot studio, and I know yes. you have to go eventually because you have much to do. This, what books have you brought with you today? Well, I was going to bring three, wasn't I? But I yes. could, um, annoyingly, the main one... Uh, despite the fact I have three copies, I simply could not find it. This is something, something's happening in my house at the moment, and I think it's fairies are stealing things. <laughs> but um, the, the, the book I really want to recommend is a, is a lost masterpiece by Wilkie Collins called No Name, which uh, his famous books are The Woman in White and The Moonstone. Mm-hmm. And No Name, is, as, as far as I know, it's only been done for radio. It's never been adapted. It's an astonishing piece of work. It's, it's the size of a doorstep, and I, it's a perfect Christmas book. Um, it's about um, it's about two sisters called Nora and Magdalene Vanston who live a very comfortable middle class Victorian life, and then a catastrophe hits them, and they're orphaned, and they discover I'm going to give away the twist. They discover that, that their parents were only recently married, and so they they lose everything, and that their entire fortune goes to this amazing distant cousin called Noel Vanston who is a, a a permanent invalid and is afraid of light and everything and uh, Nora decides to accept her lot cheerfully and Magdalene decides to get revenge and it's it's just fantastic the only reason it's not very famous is that Wilkie Collins who is a brilliant brilliant writer deliberately didn't make it what he used to call it a sensation novel because Woman in White and Winston are just full of twist after twist after twist. He actually he tells you what he's going to do. He foreshadows the lot. There's only one big twist. And 
And as a result, I think it hasn't become as famous as it should, but it's just marvelous. And there's this amazing character in it called Captain Rag, who should be one of the most famous characters in British fiction. He he calls himself a moral agriculturalist, and he's basically a shit. <laughs> and he turns up quite early. He's basically trying to ponce money off people, and he's irredeemably bad. And uh, and then when Magdalene is trying to formulate her revenge, she bumps into him accidentally. And he pitches something to her. He says, essentially, you know, what you need now is me because I am totally worthless and bad. And, of course, over the course of 700 pages, you totally fall in love with him because huh. he's the most brilliantly realised thing. He has a seven-foot wife called Mrs. Rag who, who <laughs> leans over at 45 degrees and has to be moved back up. You know. It's hysterical, strange and brilliant. Wow. I recommend it hugely. See, what do you think is something about... What your education from reading books like that, or Arthur Macken, I suppose, would be. I mean, it's, he's fascinating to see all the different. Which is what you learned from that. Where because I was thinking when when we had uh, uh, Reese Jespers on the, the other day, and Inside Number Nine and Sherlock uh, are both things that when I go brilliant, they're on. <laughs> I'm going to watch it. I have to watch it. And how much of that is what you've read and understood that all of those things as a child, all of those adventures that you've read, and how much of it is your understanding of television? And that, you know, is it both? I think, yes, it's both. I mean, I was, uh, I was, I watched all television when I was a child. I just, it was just always on in the corner. I just watched everything. So but Wasn't that part of it yeah. that it wasn't? That we, if we look back now, to no, I mean, it wasn't television. No, I mean, no, yeah. but, no, but I had it on when it wasn't when it was off. But <laughs> before afternoon plus, I used to watch the test card. I just loved, I just loved it. It was like a friend. Um, but it was a huge, a huge influence. So I've learned osmotically an awful lot of stuff from that. But also, really, from books like well, I, I didn't read No Name as a child, but but those, I suppose, a love of of adventure, of luridness, horror, obviously, but. You know, when you think about, it, I remember reading Great Expectations when I could eventually read that version, and the astonishing twist that you think, of course, that Miss Havisham yeah. is benefit, and it's actually, uh, it's actually the um, um, fuck, what's he called? I can't remember. You know Magwitch. All I'm saying, Magwitch, Magwitch. 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 I, I immediately thought Finley Curry. Yes, <laughs> I was watching only the other day in the prison. But I, um, but he's, yeah, when he realised, it's, it's amazing rug pull. Isn't you it? can't trust old rich people because no, they're scum true. they're selfish yeah. scum you've got to go for Australian sheep farms yeah they're much better like I, Saxon I thinking... McAllister from the uh, excellent uh, Mills and Boone The Challenge oh I remember you reading it I used to it. read out from because that has a twist which is <laughs> so and I used to have an opera singer on stage to help me reveal the twist where it's 1980 uh, Mills and Boone and you know that thing where you were talking about like the language in Dennis Wheatley where you go oh no I can see why this is no longer available <laughs> yeah. and there's this bit at the end where it goes uh, um, when will you marry me he I'll, I'll try and remember this uh, um, he, he urged her whenever you want she said He's, and then there's this little bit where he goes uh, he goes uh, I've, I've always loved you he goes uh, the night of that damned storm that was nearly my undoing I went in to comfort you but if I'd stayed any longer I'd have ended up raping you and she says Ooh. it wouldn't have been rape my love and you just kind of, and when I used to read that bit out, and then the opera singer, wonderful Catherine Rogers, would then create this this horrified aria. But it was, I was going, that's, that was, and that that's and the, littered throughout books of the seventies and eighties. This also, kind of casual. That book is written for housewives mm. who want a bit of a thrill. Like, how, what a bizarre way to kind of condition your audience I don't even know like misunderstand your audience if that is that true or is that not true like or, or in some ways is it like a really risque fantasy like then you think about Nancy Friday where there's you know women have obviously all kinds of fantasies so like maybe actually it's just slightly more honest about what fantasies we are like we must talk knows? about the donkey one again nope oh my god I yeah that was a bit uh... I wanted to say that, like, because it's December, it's Christmas time, there's no better time to read a Dickens book than Correct. December. Well, here's one, a, a huge recommendation. It's not on my list, I'm going to say it. It's, it's not as famous as it should be. It's beautiful. His last complete book, which is Our Mutual Friend, that's an amazing book. Is it? Because Great Expectations, I reread the other year because I'd read it... Um, as a child, and I just was like, I know this so well. Like the the characters, I love. Mm. Like I love referring to it, but I haven't read it, and I in yeah, ages. Yeah. I read it again, and the thing that really, really struck me is 
how funny he is at all times. Like, if there's a way to say a phrase in a more complicated, amusing way, he'll do it. Mm. Like, no one is going to be described in a straightforward manner, well, if you can help you it. Know, that I think Dickens is often like... Um, it's like when people do film lists and, they, and Citizen Kane is knocked off because it, people get bored with it being mm. so good. You forget Dickens was an absolute copper bottom genius, and his his turn of phrase and his gift for characterization. And there's a wonderful character in Bleak House called Mrs. Jellyby, mm. who um, who gives all her money to uh, little African babies and is surrounded by her own starving children and doesn't see what's going on. It's only a tiny. It's a sort of little thumbnail sketch of a thing, but it's such a clever. I mean, you could do a whole book on that, and it's just stuffed with things. Like, yeah. Absolutely wonderful. We've almost run out of time, so we must oh, go for yeah. your other two books. Oh, there, well, there's a wonderful book by uh, Pamela Branch. I'm not sure this is in um, in print anymore. Called the Wooden Overcoat. I adapted it for radio a few years ago. It's a it's a it was broad reissued in the Penguin Classic Crime, and um, it's just a gorgeous thing. It's set in the uh, early fifties, a sort of Festival of Britain time, and it's about um it's about a, a club formed of murderers who've got away with it called the Asterisk Club. And uh, that's what they did. Basically, everyone knows they did it. It's a sort of, you know, Pretorius type thing. And, uh, uh, Pistorius, right? <laughs> and uh, um, they, no one, so society shuns them. So they all live together in this guest house. But they live next door to this very boho, um, arty um, group of people, of sculptors and artists. And, and then some of them get murdered and they don't know which one's done it. It's a sort of healing comedy. Just the thing. premise yeah. is like, I'm in, I'm in. It's very gorgeous and, uh, and well worth seeking out. And there's a, a sequel called Murder Every Monday as well. Um, it's a, a lovely thing. And I'm very fond. It's, a, I think, a very um, underdone time, uh, that sort of uh, Fitzrovia of the, of, and Soho of the 50s, sort of Francis Bacon... John Minton times, very interesting. I imagine you've from a little bit before that. I imagine you've, you've read The Man Who Was Thursday by G.K. Chesterton. Yes, indeed. Now, you see, that's a great it, again Christmas books starting points of G.K. Chesterton. Man Who Was Thursday is the, 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 I've, I've been asked to adapt that before, and you always look. You, the, the thing that absolutely scuppers it is the last chapter, which is mystical. Yeah, but um, it's an amazing book. Can you give me a bit of a press? Well, basically, it's about. Yeah. Uh, well, I can't give you too no, much, you right? It's about no. an underground. It's about an investigator mm -hmm. who is going undercover mm -hmm. to, uh, f uh, to with an anarchist organisation. This was kind of at a time when there was a lot of anarchist organisations, and that is literally all I'm going to tell you because anything yeah, else yeah, I think yeah. reveals. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it is witty. It's again, it's one of those like the first time reading a Richard Matheson book and going, "Oh, I am legend." It's just yeah. there's the turn of phrase. Turn I think there's something else. Yes, you're absolutely right. When you find someone. Like that, you and you think I'm going to enjoy this person's company. It's like a mar. It's like meeting someone great, isn't it? You just go, oh, mm. lovely. Oh, this is oh, this is the stuff, isn't it? Yeah, mm. it's marvelous. And your final my one. final book, um, Sue, is um, uh, is a brilliant book by Graham Greene called Stamble Train, and I found this only a few years ago. Um, it's essentially the other Orient Express book, and uh, Graham Greene rather brilliantly wrote it deliberately, hoping it would be made into a film. And in a fantastic sort of Catholic thing, the film was a disaster. And he thought, oh, I, I knew that would happen. <laughs> Who was... I, that's a film I don't know at all. No, no, it's, it's totally obscure because it, was, it wasn't very successful. So was that work. quite early? Was that, Yes, that... 32 the book was written. Right. But it's a terrific thriller. Uh, it's been, lots of people's lives on this train intertwined. And this, this, um, this guy who was a... Who was the leader of a uh, of a commun of a, 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 a country, and he he's on his way back for a for a socialist uprising, which he discovers halfway there has already happened, and he's a wanted man. It's a very beautifully written book and a proper thriller. It's wonderful. It's a great lesbian uh, character in it, and I hugely recommend it. It's, it's it's it is it's like a companion piece to Murder in the Orient Express because it's got like, all that steeped in uh, Middle European train travel, high adventure, revolvers. Beautiful girls, baddies, wonderful. I just love just opening here. Q.C. Savaroy pushed his button on the spring blind and moonlight touched his face and his fish knife. Oh, what a delight. I read that there was a, I found some of my mum's old letters. We found them a while ago. And you know when you see the different person, the person you never necessarily knew? Mm. And when she was 20, she went round uh, with my dad. They, they drove around areas of Africa, like in a hillman with no proper roads or anything like that. Wow. And at one point they get to, I think it's Mamphy, and she's written this letter to her mum and she goes, the whole thing's like a sordid Graham Greene novel. It's <laughs> <laughs> just wonderful. What more could you want? Um, thank you so much for coming in, Mark thank Gatiss. You, uh, you. It's always lovely to have you here. Merry and I know Christmas. that we don't... Uh, yes, God Merry Christmas. 
us to every <laughs> single one of us. And uh, we will also, the, our, our, which you couldn't do, tragically, our uh, Infinite Monkey Cage, uh, which goes out on Christmas Day, is uh, a discussion. You're on too. Christmas Day. We're on I Christmas know. Day. And it was an amazing thing because I, for the first time ever, had food poisoning during the recording. I managed to set it up at the beginning. And then 50 minutes in, I said to Faye Dowker, now, Faye, let's look at the different understandings of time throughout the 20th century. And I wonder how the change in our understanding of time has yeah. changed... Uh, Doctor Who in the way they've interpreted it and could you answer that for as long as possible and I left right so I scarpered out and every, the audience knew when I went can you answer for as long as possible ran off three minutes I was gone and I came back and our other guest uh, Victor Stock former Dean of Guildford Cathedral was halfway through a great big presentation about the nature of Jesus and I thought I've only gone for three minutes <laughs> <laughs> I've left Brian Cox in charge who we think is going to keep no, t- no 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 no, no. now uh, he's one of my favourite uh, deans of Guilford. He's a fantastic man. One of my favourite deans of Guilford. <laughs> well, we want one, one, one of them. He's so good. We want it. Th- Graham Green thing. We tried to do a Monsignor Quixote because he is uh, a, a lovely uh, dean, and I'm a little bit kind of you know lefty. So uh, that's how you know. Again, taking the wonderful adaptation that which I loved as a kid. I don't know what it's like now, but Guinness. Leo McKernan out of oh, Guinness. Yeah. Beautiful soundtrack as well. Thank you very much, Mark Gaters. Oh, very Thank quickly, you. is that what if uh, we always end up talking about Mr. James? What should be this Christmas's Mr. James story for anyone who's going to read one, as we are not going to see one on the television? Well, you can, the, there is a ghost story this Christmas. It's called Sherlock. Oh. New Year's Day. Is it going to be a ghost story? Victorian is it New Year's Day? Yes. yes, mate. Um, but if you're going to read one, yeah, I tell you, there's a mar- there's a marvelous underrated one called Martin's Close, which is uh, it's brilliantly done as transcripts from Judge Jeffries. Uh, it's and and James had a brilliant gift for ventriloquizing uh, ancient dialogue really and and he, he's just so marvelous. It's like the court transcripts of a of a lost Judge Jeffries trial, um, trial in which um in which this man is accused of murder of murdering this girl but but she doesn't stay murdered. And it's genuinely creepy because it's actually written in the form of like as if a witness was saying that this little boy who witnesses, he, he watches the guy throw the body in the river and the knife after her. And then he says in very wonderful sort of 17th century English, he, just, he says, and then the, then someone come out of it and followed him. And, you know, it's just it's so creepy. I'd recommend that one. That sounds Thank great. you very much. Yeah. Thank you very much for listening. And that is the end of this uh, Josie Long and Robin Ince's, uh Book shambles. We now bring out the piece of paper to thank other people who have uh, pledged money to us on Patreon. So, thank you very much to... Remember, you can also support us. Uh, first of all, the website is cosmicgenome.com slash shambles, but hopefully you know that anyway. Uh, thank you very much to Trent, who uh, produces this show uh, with us. Well done, Trent. I sometimes forget to mention thank you. you. Trent. And you can also follow him uh, and follow his work at Trunkman Productions and also his work, which we do together, on cosmicgenome.com. And so thank you very much. George Cockrell. Hello, George. I haven't seen you since Melbourne. Uh, Travis, Stuart McNichol, Wayne Travis McNally. Very probably, yes. Yeah. The uh, um, Stuart McNichol, and that's Stuart McNichol, the band as well. <laughs> the uh, Wayne McNally, Sandy May, Mark Thomas, Derek Swan, Tom Kerwin. Another Mark Thomas. Mm-hmm. Uh, Derek Swan, Tom Kerwin, Richard Wright, Sean Barnum, Jason Gorman, Nick, Paul Grimes, Mike Dodds, Francis Lynn, Charlotte Balf, that's a good name. Vivian Salak, that's a good name as well. Yeah. Not that the other names beforehand haven't been good, they've all been excellent. Um, Helen Donald, David Parry, and do you want to have the last one, Josie? Paddy Garrigan. Thank you. Book Shambles will return with Season 2 in mid-January.